We are FBC Summit, leading everyday people to love Jesus and make Him known. Thank you so much for joining us today. Here's our pastor, Dr. Larry LeBlanc. Would you join me in take your, taking your Bibles and turning to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 will be in verses 1 through 5 together this morning as we continue our journey through these two wonderful Bible books. We're studying our great and glorious hope we have this week and then next week, and we will have completed our journey through First and Second Thessalonians. My prayer and my hope is it has been profitable for you as you have studied God's Word and, and prepared uh, to see what God has shown us through it. And today, I don't want you to miss what God has for you. We, we've been talking about some very big eschatological themes in the book of First and Second Thessalonians, and we have been working extremely hard to try to understand these end times events and to try to be able to wrap our minds around what God has planned and the security of the believer. And we've talked about the rapture and we've talked about the tribulation and we've talked about the antichrist and we've talked about the second coming and we've talked about the millennium and all of the things that go with it. But what we're going to see this morning is that Paul is going to take a very practical turn where he moves from the deeply theological to the deeply practical, the absolute basics of what this church needs to remember. Because after everything he's taught them, he wants to be sure that they don't miss the fundamentals of what we need to do to be able to grow in our spiritual life. Sometimes I think we get to places in life where we think it's okay to move past the fundamentals. Well, I'm beyond that. I'm past that. I've graduated from that. But for Paul, we never graduate from what the fundamentals of faith are. I'm reminded of a couple of the greatest coaches of all time. Some of you know the name Vince Lombardi. When someone wins the Super Bowl, they are awarded the Lombardi Trophy, often regarded as one of the greatest football coaches to ever live. He coached for the Green Bay Packers. And Legend has it that every time he assembled the football team together for the very first practice, we're talking about professional football players, that the very first thing Lombardi would do was look at all of them as they were sitting there, and he would grab a football and he would hold it out to them, and he would say, gentlemen, this is a football He never took for granted that we need to understand the basics. And when we forget the basics, then anything else that we do, we're not going to do well. John Wooten, Wooten, probably many of you know that name. He was the longtime UCLA basketball coach, winning his coach, uh, I think, until Krzyzewski in the history of basketball. And Many were blown away at some of his tactics when he had new recruits that would come in and they would begin a basketball season. You would think maybe he would go over defensive drills with them or straighten up their shot. The very first thing John Wooden would do was gather them all up and tell them all to take off their shoes and socks. And then he would grab a pair of socks and he would say, you have to understand how to properly put on a pair of socks. And he would walk with them on how the socks needed to be put on. He said, over my years of coaching, you don't know how many minutes of playing time players have lost because they did not know how to properly put on their pairs of socks and it wore blisters inside their feet. So we're going to make sure before you ever take the court or touch a basketball that you know how to put on your socks. So today I want you to think of this message like this. What we're going to do is hold up a football and say, this is a football. 
What we're going to do is say, let's show you how to put on your socks. And if you are going to forget a lot of things about the faith, here are four things this morning that are fundamental to your growth as a Christian. Four fundamentals that are a necessity for a healthy spiritual walk. Let's stand together and read God's word as we discover those. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, we begin in verse 1. Finally, brothers... When he says finally, it's not that he is ending it in this this passage. It's that he's marking the transition between the theological and the practical. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored just as it was with you. And pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not everyone has faith. But the Lord is faithful and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord that you, are do, in, that you are doing and will continue to do the things we command. May the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. Lord, teach us to practice these fundamentals so that we may have a healthy walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Today, you're going to see four points that are going to come up onto the screen, and every single one of these points is one word. It is one word. When you see them, this is actually a sermon that you could memorize the outline. You can write these words in the margin of your Bible. They jump right off the page. In fact, if you were to read through this and say, let let me see if I can pick the four things out, I think you would pick the four things out before I even got to them easily in looking at this passage. Because the first thing Paul says is, when I get right down to it, the one thing I want you to remember first of all is that you can't forget to do is to pray. Look at the first two verses. Pray. He says, number one, I want you to pray for us that the message of the Lord spreads rapidly and that and be honored just as it was with you. In other words, you remember when we came to you and we shared the gospel with you and you got saved and you got baptized and we started the church and God began to move in you. I want you to pray that that's going to happen again. I want you to, to pray for the gospel I want you to pray that those people that are sharing the gospel will be energized to share the gospel, that they'll be led to share the gospel, that they'll be empowered to share the gospel, that you will, that the Holy Spirit will come upon them and make them vessels to be able to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. But don't just pray that the gospel be energized in the people that are sharing it, pray for the people that are going to hear it. You see, two things ought to happen. Paul is the founder of this church, and he understands that there are certain things he expects from the Thessalonians. And any missionary and any pastor, it ought to go go this way. Paul says, I prayed for you. God saved you. God has grown you. Now I'm telling you to do the same for me and do the same for the people who need to be saved. If you are saved, it is because somebody prayed for you. If God is working in your life, it is because someone prayed for you. God has used prayer in your life to get you out of places and into places that he wanted you to be. And Paul is saying, now that you know the power of prayer, you ought to be returning the favor. If we aren't anything else, fundamentally, we have got to be a praying 
church, praying that the gospel would be proclaimed and praying that the gospel would be accepted. It should be that you should be praying for me to proclaim the gospel. I should be praying for you to accept the gospel, that we should be praying that the gospel go out of this church and into our community and around the world. And we should be praying for the people that are going to hear it, that by the grace of God and the Holy Spirit's conviction that their ears and their hearts would be open, that their minds would understand and they would be radically saved. Pray, Paul says, number one, for the spread and acceptance of the gospel. But the second thing he tells us that we are to pray for is the protection of the faithful. The protection of the faithful. Look at verse two. And pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not everyone has faith. If there's ever been an understatement by Paul, that may be it. Not everyone has faith. 2,000 years from now, how many of you know not everyone has faith? Not everybody you go to school with has faith. Not everybody you work with has faith. Not everybody we deal with has faith. There are a lot of people out there who do not place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. This is a predominantly lost world. More people are lost than are saved. And we have more people that hate the gospel than love the gospel. We have more people that do not love the things of God than love the things of God. We live in a world which Paul says is wicked, it's evil, it's perverse. 2,000 years later, we aren't any better. Now, it was wicked and perverse in Paul's day. I, I sometimes get a little bit annoyed when we think we have the market cornered on wickedness and evil and corruption. As long as there is a sin-sick world, until Jesus returns and establishes his millennial reign, there is going to be a sin-sick evil condition that perverts the hearts and minds of people. It's the world we live in. It doesn't mean we back up for the gospel, but it does mean that we understand what we're up against. And when we understand what we're up against, we're a lot better to fight the war than to try to stick our head in the sand and pretend like everything's okay. Everything's not okay. It's fallen. And because it's fallen, the gospel is even more needed. And so Paul says we need to pray for the protection of the faithful. He saying, pray for me as I spread the gospel. I was so convicted studying this passage because what I also realized is that Paul didn't care anything about being killed. He didn't mind dying for the gospel. We know that from Philippians. He says, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. He's saying, if I get to live, I get to keep preaching and teaching and establishing churches. But if you kill me, I get to be with Jesus. I win either way. That's hard if you put somebody on trial and that's their answer. I know Paul didn't mind dying. I know he was looking forward to it. So when he says, I'm praying for protection, he's not talking about his creature comforts. He's not, hey, help me to live a long and prosperous life. He's saying, pray that we will be protected so that we can keep preaching the gospel. I've got a, a message and, and there's work still to do, so I'm asking for your help in, pro in protecting us. Because his hostility is real. Betsy Ten Boom, if that name rings a bell, Corey Ten Boom that wrote The Hiding Place about hiding out during the Nazi regime and trying to hide Jews that Hitler was trying to exterminate. Betsy was her sister. And Betsy Ten Boom said this, the center of God's will is our only safety. 
the center of God's will is our only safety. Now, when we think about what it looks like to be safe in the will of God, we've been through a lot over the past several years. If you would have told me in 2019 what we were going to go through over the last three years, I don't know that I would have believed it. If somebody would have come and told me they had some prophecy and, and told me all that, I, I think I'd have looked at them like they were crazy. And now we're, we're looking back and we're kind of peeling back the layers on a lot of what we've gone through. And I came across a story several years ago about a guy in 2019, um, a guy by the name of Bert Terhart. And he wanted to attempt something that nobody had ever attempted in the history of the world. So in October of 19, Bert Terhart boarded a 40-foot ocean-faring sailboat and he set sail from Victoria, British Columbia. The reason was he wanted to become the first North American to circumnavigate the globe solo, by himself, all the way around the world in this 40-foot sailboat. So he goes out, but he also wants to set the record by not using modern tools, not using modern navigational tools. So all he takes with him is a sextant, a pen, paper and an almanac that's all he's got and he so he set sail to try to set this record on July 28th 2020 July 28th 2020 he'd been on the open ocean for 267 days he sailed back into Victoria and he accomplished his goal while he was out there he faced extreme weather 14-foot ocean swells, unforeseen ship repairs, sleep deprivation, and yet despite all of it, when he landed back, this is what they said about Bert Terhart. They said that while he was on that boat, they dubbed him, and I quote, the safest man on earth. Why? He had no communication with the modern world. He never even heard of COVID-19. He never heard of social distancing. He never heard about flattening the curve. He was sheltering in place, and he didn't even know what sheltering in place was. And the whole time, he's quarantined in a way that none of us ever quarantined. He couldn't have been around another human being had he wanted to be. While he's on the open ocean facing all these other dangers, he is safe from all of that. And as I'm reading this story, and I don't know whether the guy's nuts or not. I've got to think he's got to, got to have at least a screw loose. And I'm reading this story about this guy, and I'm thinking so often in our efforts to try to be safe and comfortable, what we actually do is put ourselves in danger because if we risk ourselves for the glory and the grace of God, we're better off on the open ocean in the will of God than we are in our own selves and in our own lives trying to do what we want to do. And so the point being, pray for protection and safety, but trust that God can provide that. So we pray, number one, but number two, look at verse three. Number two, we trust, but the Lord is faithful and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. He will strengthen us from the inside and protect us from the outside. It's not that trouble won't come, 
It's that you can count on a faithful God when trouble does come. Do you see that word in verse 3 where it says, protect? He will protect you from the evil one. I was doing a word study. I noticed something about that word that I had not seen before. That word for protect is the same word that when you are studying Luke and the shepherds were doing what? Keeping watch over the fields by night. The word protect and the word used for keeping watch are actually the exact same word in the Greek. What Paul is writing to them is that all of the while, you know that God is keeping watch over his flock by day and by night. God never keeps from keeping watch over us. Always he is keeping watch over us. They did a study recently over 900 people involved in this study. Didn't have to be a believer. Didn't have to have any religious affiliation at all. In fact, they didn't even come at people from that vantage point. This was a psychological study of these 900 people. And what they found was, was that if they did anything to remind one of the participants of God, in other words, if they did a word scramble that had the word God in it, or if they read about the word God when they were reading in a paragraph um, about something, that immediately after having been exposed to the idea of God, that of these 900 participants, overwhelmingly, those that had been exposed to the idea of God were willing to engage in more risky behaviors than those who weren't prompted to think about God. You say, why are you sharing that? Because I think it's a weird study. So you study people, whether they're believers or not, you you put the idea of God into their mind, and then you see which behaviors that they're willing to be involved in. I don't know that I wouldn't have thought that the results of the study wouldn't have been the opposite. That, okay, well, they've been introduced to God. They have a thought of God. They are going to be more risk averse. They're going to be more careful. The opposite was true. And so I began to really think about that when it comes to this passage and what it looks like for us to trust God. If I really trust God and I'm sure of who he is, not just a general knowledge, but I know of his omnipotence and his omnipresence and his sovereignty and his grace and his love, and I know all of those things about God, then I do not mind taking risk for that God because I know that he's going to keep me in a way that only he can keep me. And it allows us to say, you know what? It may not always be easy. It may not always be safe, but I trust him over and over again. So we pray, we trust. And if you know the old hymn, you know what the third point is because after you trust, what do you do? We trust and obey. Well, there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. Look at verse four. We have confidence in the Lord that you are doing and will continue to do the things we command. I love that. I love that. I have confidence, he says, I I believe in you. I believe in you. Man, we need people to look at us and say, I believe in you. We mentioned athletics earlier. We talked about basketball and football. In athletics, you need somebody that's going to look at you and say, I, I know you're going to get a hit in this situation. I know you're going to hit these shots. But it's not just in sports. We need people that are going to look at us and say, 
I don't think you're going to lose. I don't think you're going to be defeated. I think because of what I've seen in you and by the power of the Holy Spirit and what God's done in your life and the friends you have standing beside you, I believe you're going to be obedient to the gospel. And I've thought about that because so often, I think, Scott, that all of us, at times, when we address young people, we're all the time warning them about what they shouldn't do. Well, you shouldn't do this, and you shouldn't do this, shouldn't do this, and all the dangers, and all the peer pressure. And, and I want to hear, I want you guys to hear me. Some of you are home from college, and I've got you for a few weeks before you go back. That fires me up. I like looking at you over here. I'm sick of us telling you that we think you're going to fail. You have no reason to fail. No reason. Here's why. You've got, you're saved, you've got the Word of God, you've got friends in Christ, you've got a church that supports you, you've got every reason in the world to succeed in your walk with Christ. So let's quit addressing people like, well, we know you're going to mess up. Why? Why do we know that? Because we're filled with excuses and justifications so that after we mess up, we can say, well, you know, it was bound to happen. It's not bound to happen. It's not bound to happen. You don't have to live like that. I'm not saying you're not going to mess up, but I'm saying we ought to believe that we can obey Jesus, that we have the power and the love of God to obey Jesus. If we love him, the Bible says we will obey him. I like what Henry Ford said, founder of the Ford Motor Company. You can't build a reputation on what you're going to do. What does that mean? It means you got to do it. You got to obey. Not tomorrow, not next week. You've got to do what God has placed on your heart to do. You got to pray. You got to trust. You've got to obey. And then, number four, look at verse five. May the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. You've got to grow. You've got to grow. I mentioned on Wednesday night several weeks ago, Guinness Book of World Records. I don't know if any of you ever Google that or try to come up with some of the records that people have broken. Some of them are the more obvious things that you think about. Who, who's, run the, who's got the fastest time running in all time or who's got the longest long jump or, or whatever it is that you may think of. But there are some really, really weird world records. Things that you look at and go, why would anybody even think about that, much less want to have the Guinness Book of World Records in it? If you've ever been into one of their stores, you find some very bizarre things. You can get a Guinness Book of World Records book, and if you're anything like me, you can lose two hours. Because I'm trying to not only see what records have been broken, but I'm interested in the psychology of what kind of human being did it take? How, How did you become someone who wanted to break the world record for being a couch potato this is real this is real some of you are like I think I got that no this is real Suresh Joachim Suresh Joachim broke the Guinness Book of World Record previous mark for the longest time spent watching television He spent 
69 hours and 48 minutes in front of the television. That's not sleeping, that's watching TV straight, 69 hours and 48 minutes. They did give him a five minute bathroom break every hour and 15 minutes. But uh, every, uh, but other than that, the entire time he spent glued to the screen because he wanted to break the world record for spending the longest time as a couch potato. And I'm reading this and I'm thinking, oh Lord, that my kids would have better goals. Oh, that you guys would have better goals. Oh, that you would want more than that, than to just plop down and exist, to just make it through, to sit there on the couch and watch television. Absolutely not. But yet when it comes to our Christian faith, guys, I hate to tell you, There's a lot of people that are real comfortable to sit in the same spot week after week, year after year, never grow in their faith, never share their faith, never study their Bible, not pray, never be involved with a small group of people, never approach anyone else, never change a habitual sinful condition. You just plop down on the couch somewhere along the way when you got saved and you've been sitting there way too long. Get up, right? Get up. Start moving. Have you ever taught anybody how to ride a bicycle? That's a blast, isn't it? One thing I'll tell you about teaching somebody to ride a bicycle that I'm positive of. If they're not moving forward, they're on the concrete. Trying to balance a bicycle without it moving is one of the most impossible things that you can try to do. You've got to be moving. And it is the exact same thing in the Christian life. That's why Paul tells them, I want to direct your hearts. May the Lord direct your hearts in God's love and in Christ's perseverance. We keep moving forward. The word for direct, that God would direct, that that word has the meaning of removing obstacles, like clearing a road, making it, making it able to pass so that you would be able to stay on track. Let me ask you this. From the time you got saved until now, have you progressed spiritually? Have you grown? You see, the words here are important because he says that the the road is God. He's praying that God would clear the road so that you would have the most direct route possible. Unfortunately, a lot of times in my life, I'll be honest with you, I've taken a lot of detours. Have any of you taken any detours along the, along the way? You knew I needed to keep going this way, but you took an exit ramp. And for some of you, you got off and you came right back on. For others of you, the exit ramp said far country, just like the prodigal in Luke 15. And you just kept going down that highway. And it took a long, long time for you to get back on the direct route that Paul is talking about. But what I'm telling you is this, kind of like what I reminded you guys earlier. You don't have to do that. We hear these testimonies all the time about people that got so far off track or found their lives in shambles or found their lives in drug addiction or alcohol addiction or in terrible relationships. So I think sometimes as the church, we've highlighted those testimonies so much that somebody hears them and thinks, well, that must be the only way to to really have a close relationship with God is to run my life into a ditch and then him bring it out of the ditch so I can tell people how my life was in the ditch and now I'm out of the ditch. That is foolish. Foolish. 
Now, if that's what's happened, praise God for his grace and thank God that he delivers. But to intentionally think that that's how you have to run your life when God would rather you walk with him day by day, moment by moment. And how much more of an incredible testimony would it be instead of saying, hey, listen, I got involved with this relationship with this boy and we really went down a bad road and it started me on a terrible path that took me really two to three years to recover from. Instead of saying that, why not say, hey, you know what? I met a guy and I was really interested, but I prayed about it and I recognized that that was going to take me down a road I didn't need to go on and the Lord protected me from that bad decision and thank God he kept me on track I like that testimony better I like that testimony some of you have been delivered from alcohol and drugs and gambling and all of those things I don't know anybody that's been delivered from those things that would say you know what the best thing for you to do is to become an alcoholic to become a drug addict because then you can get in front of people and say, well, I was an alcoholic and I was a drug addict, but the Lord delivered me from that. Well, thank God the Lord does deliver you. But given the choice, I say, why don't you just stay on the path that the Lord has given you instead of trying to figure out how you can take a detour because you know the Lord will take you back. He's talking about what it really looks like to grow. Obviously, in the love of God, he says, but he also says in Christ perseverance what does that phrase mean in Christ perseverance it's saying that more and more that we would understand Jesus endurance in the trials that he faced so we would be stronger to do the same when we face trials it is Paul's way of telling them if you understand the perseverance of Christ then you will keep on keeping on you will focus on what lies past the immediate problem not just what is in the immediate problem. This is not a grin and bear it attitude. This is recognizing that there truly is victory and triumph on the other side. I want to share with you the story, a summarized biography of one of my favorite characters in Christian history. Many of you will recognize the last name by a national brand that still sells to this day. In the early 1900s, a 16-year-old young man named William Whiting Borden graduated from the Hill School in Pottstown, Pennsylvania. It's a prestigious boarding school known for sending its alumni to Princeton. He was an heir to the Borden family mining fortune and had a clear path to wealth and success that was already set before him. But before Borden began his Ivy League education at Yale, his parents sent him on a year-long trip around the world as a graduation present. That's a nice graduation present. Earlier in his life, Borden had given his life to Christ. And so while traveling the world, something happened that no one expected. He was moved by the spiritual and physical needs of people around the world. And he wrote a letter to his parents and informed them that he wanted to spend his life as a missionary. One of his friends remarked that becoming a missionary would be tantamount to throwing one's life away. Upon his return, Borden went on to Yale and he graduated. And then he studied and graduated from Princeton Theological Seminary. And when his ministry preparation was completed, he boarded a ship to Asia to serve among Muslims in China's Gansu province. 
Along the way, he stopped in Cairo to learn Arabic and to study Islam. In Egypt, Borden contracted spinal meningitis. And less than a month later, he was dead. He was 25 years old. Borden walked away from his fortune to take the gospel of Jesus to the nations of the world. Most people in his day regarded his death as a tragedy. However, God took that tragedy and did something far greater than Borden could have ever done himself. When young men and women read and hear the story of Borden in the newspapers of America, it inspired them to leave all they had and give their lives to reach the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. One thing that's so beautiful about Borden's life is that they found his Bible and that he wrote phrases in the margins of his Bible. And I want to share those with you. While he was struggling with his desire to become a missionary against his father's heavy disapproval, he wrote these two words in the, in the, mar, in the margin of his Bible. No reserves. Toward the end of his time in Yale, he had started a Bible study attended by three-quarters of the school's student population. He wrote in the margins of his Bible, no retreats. And as he lay dying of spinal meningitis in Cairo, Egypt, he wrote, no regrets, no reserves, no retreats, no regrets. That's what a life that's based on the fundamentals of the faith really looks like. You know, all of us are, should be, living with the end in mind. We look up now and recognize that this life is not all there is, amen? One of my favorite recent authors, theologians, is a man by the name of John Stott. Os Guinness tells the story that about his last conversation with John Stott. John Stott was lying in his bed, dying, not more than a few days, maybe weeks to live. And Os Guinness leaned down and he asked John Stott this question. He said, John, they had been personal friends for a long time. He said, John, he said, how can I pray for you? And he said, without missing a beat, John Stott looked at me and said, Pray that I will be faithful to Jesus until my last breath. He was dead a few days later. I guess if we're going to pray for each other, I don't know that I can think of a better thing to pray. Pray that I be faithful to Jesus until my last breath. That's fundamentally what is demanded of us as believers. Would you stand with me? Thanks for listening to FBC Summit. We are leading everyday people to love Jesus and make Him known. For more information, visit our website, fbcsummit.org.